You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Satan, your kingdom must come down. Satan, your kingdom must come down. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Hello there, everybody. This is Danny Anderson. Welcome you to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. Um, hope you're having a happy new year and getting ready for 2022. Uh, 2021 is behind us at last. Um, today, I have a really special guest. I am joined by uh, a man named John Aish, and he is a, uh, a retired Mennonite uh, pastor, Church, uh, of Church of the Brethren, Brethren pastor, who is... <laughs> They're related to the Mennonites, and so I get confused, excuse me. Um, and he um, has a new book out, and he reached out to me and sent me a copy of the book, and I found it really interesting. It's called The Bible, The Bomb, and The Burden. Um, it's by John E. Esh, Esh, and it is available for on, to purchase on Amazon, either in hard copy or on Kindle. So, um, uh, and it's I think you'll find it a really interesting um, exploration of the gospel from a really unique perspective, but also, um, it speaks to me because it, it tries to sort of, uh, find a connection between things that most people don't try to connect. And in this case, um, John is really interested in connecting religion with like scientific language. And, and I found it to be a, just a fascinating book. Um, uh, for those of you who listened to the show for a long time, you know me by now that I am very interested in Probably my inspiration by, uh, of Matthew Arnold, but I'm very interested in finding ways to live within tension and, and trying to find ways to kind of live, um, within the poles of certain things. And so I, this book really, really speaks to me, uh, in that way for reasons that'll become apparent later on. Um, but I want to welcome John. Uh, John, how are you today? Well, I'm as well as you can expect, I think, for considering all the circumstances. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, just glad to be able to be here. Yes. And to uh, have uh, not only this opportunity, but to have some conversation with you and know a little bit about another person here that is interested in uh, the same kind of subject. Absolutely. I found your book really, really interesting. It's not that long. It's like 120 pages or something, um, but it's just packed full of really interesting reflections and insights. And I want to get into the specifics of the argument here in a little bit. But do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself um, before we get into the specifics of your book? Like what, what's your background? Uh, where are you from? What kind of uh, communities did you minister to and that sort of thing? Well, I think that might be... Uh part of what was helpful in putting this book together because of the wide variety of experiences I've been privileged to have. And also that means the wide variety of people that I've been able to deal with, uh, maybe some not as much as others, but on a one-to-one -one basis to be able to communicate in person with a lot of people, uh, not only learning a little bit about where they're coming from, but uh, how they actually look at things today themselves. That's culturally and from a religious background. I grew up in a rural area in Somerset County, and it was the same as anybody else's background would be at that time. And because I was born in an era that was 
really, really different from now. At that time, the countryside uh, was rare to see a tractor on a farm. Everything was horses. And like the fields you see now with the Amish having their shocks of grain, that was on every farm around us. I shocked grain, learned to shock grain as soon as I was big enough to uh, carry a sheaf for the older people. I didn't live on the farm. My father was a coal miner all his life, but he and my mother both grew up on farms, and I was at my grandparents' as much as I could be any time of the year, summer or winter. So uh, I do have that background. Plus, growing up in the area we did, everybody you went to school with either came from out in the country or from in that coal mining town. There was nobody that was from a large town. It was a town that had maybe at that time, uh, at the most, I would say, 1,400, 1,500 people, which is smaller today. But so you went into a grade school. And when I started out in a one-room school, there was no high school in that district. So the high school opened up the second year I went to school. So I had the one-room school experience that a lot of older people talk about and ended in Somerset County, Quantum. A township ended there with my generation. Second grade, uh, you went on, you learned how to ride a school bus instead of walk to school. <laughs> and so growing up in that area, and then when I graduated, uh, it was in 1949, and by that time, civilization, especially in this country, was starting to make the shift that I refer to very much in the area called the bomb in the title of the book. But before that, it was simply a rural upbringing like millions and millions of Americans had. And uh, the, I don't know how much I can ramble. <laughs> well, that, that perspective is really interesting, and I can see it. You're, so you're someone who sort of lived through this big epical change between this older sort of agrarian small-town life um, into the atomic age, and you sort of witnessed it happening. Um, and so you have these two perspectives on the world that you're able to kind of compare and contrast with one another. Um, and you make it clear in the book that that started in you um, these, these kind of theological questions, right? And so you ended up becoming a, a pastor, right? Right. Well, we grew up in the church of the brethren. I mean, we, we attended regularly. And uh, so we grew up knowing, knowing uh, the church of the brethren faith, which were the original people that were nicknamed Dunkers. And uh, because of the experience we had, though, with people of a lot of different denominations growing up, now, they, they didn't cooperate like we do today. Yeah. And the Catholic Church was uh, something that they weren't allowed, you know, to go to Protestant churches in those days. It was different. And uh, so we grew up knowing all those taboos, and uh, we grew up knowing people in uh, the Orthodox as well as, didn't matter what it was. Uh, you went to school with them. They were your friends. You go back and forth to each other's house. Mm -hmm. And so uh, growing up like that, we, we didn't grow up with the prejudice that we heard a lot about because the kids played together where their parents or grandparents came from another country where all they knew was, you know, their particular culture. Well, I think I call it the Americanization of our religion because we all had the same roots mm -hmm. in our education, no matter where your ancestors came from. And that's all we knew. Our teachers, a lot of times they would tell us experiences 
from back in the older days so we could hear oral histories of how communities lived and were different. But to a lot of these uh, students, their uh, parents or grandparents who were new in this country, where we could have histories that went back hundreds of years, but it didn't matter to the kids. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it mattered to the parents, but kids, we didn't, we knew the difference. Yeah. Uh, we, we talked about religion when we were in grade school. Yeah. But the, we, we knew a lot of the difference, so we didn't know why. Yeah. But we just knew, hey, they're different, but we don't care. And so you have sort of a, I mean, you're coming from a denominational perspective, but you have an ecumenical sort of appreciation for Christianity at large, right? Um, well, and, today, yeah. yes, yes. And, go ahead. Well, I was going to, well, it, I grew up with that sort of broad-minded attitude. We right. just knew there were certain people that we weren't sure they were going to heaven because right. they didn't believe like us. But at the same time, they weren't strange people. We knew who they were. Right. And as we got older, communicated. And then uh, I was called to the ministry when I was only 17, and I turned it down. There were a group of us because our church ministers were chosen by the people at that time. Uh, volunteers were rare. Uh, they And so uh, at that time, I and along with three of the four others, there's one went on to seminary, but the uh, other three of us turned it down. So, then, when, so when you say, uh, the, I come, I'm from Nazarene, okay. and so when I hear someone say, I was called to the ministry, I'm thinking like God is speaking to you, right? But this is like your congregation is, church called is, is recruiting the you. Church spoke for God. Oh, that's so interesting. Okay. <laughs> but, so, but that initial call you, um, you put off for a while. So yeah. go ahead with your story. So anyhow, there were four of us. So I went on and went on into secular life and, uh, I, I worked as a laborer, of course, because work was hard to get when I graduated from high school. Worked for a building contractor. But anyhow, I was fortunate enough to be able to get a uh, work in the advertising department of the local daily newspaper. And so I stayed there, and uh, I had time out uh, during the Korean War to serve in the Navy. I had been a reserve, so then I was called up during the Korean War. And so... In the meantime, I had gotten married and uh, started a family. Well, I went on into the, what we call the National Advertising Department, which is history now. Uh, I don't think there is such a thing at <laughs> that newspaper, at least. And uh, But along the line, I forget what year it was, while I worked at the paper, the church called me and another man the second time. So he asked me, you know, what do we do? And I said, I don't. I don't think, I mean, I'm working for the paper. I have this career and, uh, I mean, I have small children. So he was convinced that he could stay where he was and, you know, that's where God wanted him. But I couldn't quite get over that, that second time. <laughs> and, uh, we didn't talk about it much at home, my wife and I. But the time came and I thought, that's the second time. And you say, did God call me? Yeah. Well, and so I went and said, you know, I, I think I will accept. And so at that time, there was an overlap till I made that adjustment. There's certain theological education, you know, to follow up with, and our denomination provides avenues for that. And so I did that and then left the newspaper. Okay. And speaking of education, so, I mean, your book is very eclectic. You talk, 
you know, about lots of things. You seem like a very, a very kind of just generally curious person who knows a lot about a lot of things. And so is that part of your theological education or were you just sort of always a curious reader? Well, I was always a curious reader. And as I mentioned in there, this question about God, I yeah. was just a boy. I don't know how old. When somebody asks a question, if God can do anything, can he make a stone so big he can't lift it? I never got over that question. I mean, it just, you don't think, dwell on it, but it just comes up, what about that question? And as I learned so much more about different denominations, and of course, you know, the Catholic Church opened up with Pope John, I forget the year, and that was about the same time I'm really, really been into the theological area for serious purposes. And so... That intrigued me right away, already knowing quite a bit about the Catholic Church and Catholic friends. Yeah. I'm yeah. Well, the the paradox that you describe is really interesting to me. I mean, so I very much am in that same boat. Like, I love unresolvable riddles and questions. And to me, that's where, that's, that's the beginning of education, is this sort of chasing an unanswerable question. And you sort of learn more and more along the way towards that unanswerable question. And so you, I loved how you made paradox as sort of a center of this book. It's sort of like the beginning of the book, really, um, is this kind of contemplation of these paradoxes. And that's where I want to get into the argument that you make in the book here. Um, basically, you're claiming, and, as, and it comes from your life experience, you're able to witness a time before the scientific explosion uh, in society and then the subsequent explosion of science in society. And so you claim that society now basically thinks of the world through scientific terms, right? And, and in scientific ways. And that the church needs to sort of use that kind of language to translate almost the gospel to newer generations who are coming up um, using different kinds of concepts to understand the world. Um, am, I, am I right about this, basically? Well, you're, you're right about that. And the problem is, as I see it, we don't have to change our doctrines. Right. We don't have to change our teachings. But we have taught those out of tried and true methods, methods in seminaries and churches and in Sunday schools and parents teaching their children. We've been teaching those same things for, I'll say, like hundreds of years as they've developed. And uh, they always fit. They were true to life up till 1945. They were true to life as everybody understood it. And as that one chapter says, the parents and the grandparents, the clergy, the youngsters, they all read the same books. But by the time you go to a science book now, and the science book I had in the 1940s, that sounds like something that was written for the pilgrims. I mean, <laughs> you know, they could have understood it because right. we could quote them. But there's an element entered into the world that comes from the world, and I have that dichotomy, the world, you know, good versus evil, the uh, Satan versus God. Uh, I mean, that's there. And it's not just a theory, because you can see it. Right. This is in the Bible. You can see examples. But whenever you have this going on, we don't have any church language to be able to say to somebody now that grew up with all this other experience. I mean, we're still coming, I would say, more or less from a mental 
and intellectual approach, but we didn't make room for all this stuff that's inside us now, uh, mentally, emotionally, and now even physically with the inventions of science because we quit talking to science. Back in those days, they argued with science. You had your theories like, like evolution or slavery or whatever it was. People, they were arguing with each other, but they were on the same ground. Mm -hmm. They read the same books. Didn't matter if you're north or south. Didn't matter uh, whether it's uh, uh, whatever the subject was. You came from some, and you knew that. You understood. Why don't you see it? You read the same books I did. But when we went over into science today, we're talking about something that they say, okay, we got it. We heard you. But we haven't heard them. But we have millions of children and youth and up into all the generations, probably since, what, 1950, they are already learning this brand new language that doesn't have a vocabulary in the religious field. That's the tension that is so attractive to me that you, you just like you find a real opportunity in that gap, right? Um, for evangelism. And, and I, I, that's, uh, that, that's, oh, I love the, the approach you take. So I, tell me, well, let me, I've, if I'm putting words in your mouth, like, uh, correct me, but I'll correct you. so, <laughs> so one thing, um, so you're saying basically you kind of claim that people of like traditional religious faiths, think of things in terms of like belief and knowledge, right? Whereas people from a scientific um, standpoint, think of things that you can sort of touch and measure and observe, like like the material world that is like measurable on some level. And so one thing I, I remember you did in the book was you basically talked about entropy and like, so an ice cube melting, um, you can't really reconstruct the ice cube after it's melted, right? It's just sort of a natural state of decay that um, all natural things go through. And so for you, that's an opportunity to start talking about like original sin and um, like the decay of, of, of sin just on being born into the world, right? Um, and so that's a way, that's, a, that's an opportunity to use a scientific metaphor, I suppose, to sort of talk about a theological concept. Um, is that sort of what you have in mind? Yes, that's, that's a big part of it. Uh, a nuclear scientist told me one of the things you got to keep in mind about anything is that a theory doesn't have proof. You just accept it. And like the uh, theory that, the, uh, that everything's melting, everything's going bad, that law is not a law. It's a law because somebody said, here are laws and we obey those laws. And that's a useful law in some areas, but you cannot prove that. You can't prove it because you'd have to wait till the end of time <laughs> to, like he said, the theory that if you flip a coin, 50% of the time it'll come up heads, 50 times it'll come up uh, the opposite. He said that is true, but only because we accept it. Yeah. it no, nobody ever proved it. Yeah. You can't. All the data's not in yet, right? As the long as time is... In. <laughs> and so it is, and uh, what the Bible tells us, all the data's not in yet. <laughs> but, no, like they believed the Bible in a world they could see and touch. Excuse me. <clears throat> they could measure. And science, when they split the atom, entered into a world where they can see and measure and see this is why this acts. 
But the church never followed up to say, well, what does that have to do with our theology? What, how does that affect our core beliefs? What does that affect the way we should act? If we want to call out and say that the highest law of all is to love God with all our heart, you know, and love our neighbors ourselves, uh, we know how to do that in a world that we can see and touch and measure. But there's a whole world going on inside this table, inside this microphone. There's a whole world going on in there right now. It's not solid. Mm -hmm. It's just in motion. We don't have any theology that says, well, how do we deal with that? that? That's so interesting to me. So, I mean, a lot of, I think, Christian thinkers who write about this kind of thing want to sort of like take a Christian perspective as Christian, as the faith has all the answers. And what you're saying, you're almost taking the scientific perspective. Like there's something that the Christians can learn from science, basically. Uh, and that there's some, there's some relationship to be forged between faith and, and, and science. Well, and where the, I think the visible need is we have Christians by the, what, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions in every, uh, denominational background who are in this field, if you're a nurse, uh, if you're a technician in a hospital working with radiation, this is your Monday to Friday job. So we used to say to the farmer and the coal miner and the carpenter and the plumber and the teacher and everybody else, how do you apply what you learned here about the gospel? How do you apply that in everything you're doing on, uh, you know, on your job? In the 1800s, the Church of the Brethren had a whole list of things that were forbidden occupations to brethren, to dunkers. You did not do that. If you want to be, uh, that's an ungodly job. Well, if they made that distinctions, how do you make it to now? If you're uh, working in electronics, you're working with artificial intelligence, you're applying radiation, you're doing all these things that, well, we never thought about that. Right. What does that do to your job on Monday to Friday? Are you working for the Lord here also? Or are you promoting something that uh, is Ill against your religion? Yeah. We don't have any religion about that. Yeah. Just educate me. What was the term dunkers? Um, what did that, does that have to do with baptism? Uh, it was a nickname. Okay. Uh, they, they were Taufers in German. Oh, okay. They're Taufers. And uh, that means they're the dunkers because they immerse people by immersing them into water three times, which nobody else did. <laughs> okay. And presently, I'm not aware unless they're from that same, they're a different brethren background now. But unless they came from that, uh, they said we're going to take the New Testament we're going to literally do or not do everything that Jesus said and the Bible says, and they made it into a handbook. Okay. The Bible became a handbook for theology, oh. which, you know, that's arguable, but uh, <laughs> that's, and that's still the official thing. Yeah. Now, a lot of variations in the way people interpret in recent years, but so they got the nickname. These are the dunkers. Uh, they can't just uh, sprinkle. They can't just pour. They can't just... Do this. They can't dip you in the water one time. You got to do it three times. These are dirt offers. <laughs> and so in English, that's the dunkers. Okay. And still, we're still the dunkers. Okay. That's interesting. I never knew that, um, that little backstory. That's, that's fascinating though. Um, and can, on, you mentioned this list of forbidden occupations. Do you happen to know any of the occupations that were on that list? Oh, I'd have head? to, well, I'd have to stop back. I'll, I'll send you a list sometime. Okay. Just, uh, <laughs> 
to show you what it was. Well, uh, I don't think you. I'll put on. I don't think you're allowed to be a bartender. Uh, boy, right now, that, trying but, to think real quick. Yeah, I, I mean that makes sense, right? You've got some moral turpitude, you know, issues because yeah. of alcoholism, right, and all yeah, that sort of thing. Like um, but and so you think that in essence we haven't thought about that in the modern world, right? Like what, like what kinds of occupations are appropriate occupations for people of faith, right? And and no one has like. I mean, obviously, I think most faiths would frown on someone being a porn star or something, right? <laughs> or something like that, right? But there's no sort of official documentation about that. And certainly nobody, um, if you work for a tobacco company or something like that, um, there probably is no like uh, like official rule against doing something like that. But you have to wonder why there isn't. And then with in terms of technology, I think that that's also very interesting. Um I want this is a transition to your discussion about AI. Um, AI is seen by a lot of people, artificial intelligence is seen by a lot of people as this big danger to humanity, right? This threat, uh, to humanity that's looming. And so I can understand a theology that, um, resists going into this kind of transhumanist sort of um, um, field. Uh, but you seem to have more complicated opinions on, on AI. And I, I guess I just want you to kind of tell me a little bit about what your thoughts on how something like that, sort of like the ultimate exploration of science and technology, the ultimate example of it, um, how that affects the Christian faith. Like, what are your thoughts on AI? Well, uh, right now, my thoughts are that it's so far ahead of us. We really have to run if we want to even begin to catch up to it because it's come in over the years unobserved. And back in those days, you could say, do you uh, think that what you're doing is in line with what Jesus would say? This is a good job. Well, they did it back in those days or whatever. It was okay. And because it was still close enough to rural roots and uh, pre-industrial revolution age that these things were valid subjects. Mm -hmm. For instance, you know, like we still have, uh, like the Amish and so forth, that don't accept automobiles. Uh, that's true, right? And up through their uh, background traditions, they have different levels. You're familiar with that, that maybe you can have an automobile, but you have to paint the bumpers black. Okay. You've heard of black bumper Mennonites? I had not heard of that one. Okay. Yeah, yeah if you're in the Lancaster area, uh, then you have what you call black bumper Mennonites. Then you have other variations, and but they all come from the same roots. Yeah. And uh, originally, uh, just to make a real shorthand where the Dunkers came from, uh -huh. uh, back at that time, the Mennonites were already had been in business for a long time through Menna Simons. And so they had a lot in common with them. Uh, they believed in uh, believers' baptism, so they became Anabaptists right there. And uh, they also believed in uh, being anti-war. They right. believed that war was wrong. They shared that with them. And they also believed uh, a lot of the other things theologically. But then they came along men by the name of Alexander Mack, people, and he... Uh, the, he was educated man. He was a miller in Schwarzenau, Germany. But he was a uh, theologian enough that he thought there's something wrong. He, he was, no, it wasn't Catholic. 
by that time the reform tradition was there. So they would have come more out of the reform background than Catholic or Lutheran. Mm -hmm. And so what he did was say, well, the Mennonites, they have a lot of good ideas. You know, they believe in uh, being Anabaptist, etc. But he didn't kind of like their hierarchy of the way their church operated. The pietistic movement in that part of the world was really going well, and he liked their spiritism, the spirited way they approached their faith. Yeah, but yet he thought, I, I just can't quite into that. So he said, this is what would have been unique, that we'll just take the New Testament. This will be it. That's will settle it right there. Okay. That'll be it. Uh, we like what they're doing. We like what they're doing, but here's things we can't go with. And that's what made them unique. Okay. And that's why they said, we'll do what the Bible says. <clears throat> okay, he said, you'll be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay. We still do that. You do that? They said, we'll do that three times, one for each of them, because that's what the words say. Right. They tried to go what the words say. And it was very, very careful to do that. And and a lot of that was rejecting, I mean, so it was taking the parts of the Mennonite faith that they liked, but rejecting parts that they didn't, maybe, and somehow this like anti-technology, um, anti-whatever, I don't know if anti-technology is the right word, but this sort of uh, resistance to technology that comes with Amish and Mennonite traditions, um, they left that behind as well, um, along with some of these other more authoritarian kinds of um, uh, ecumenical structures. Right. They, they shared so much of that in common. Yeah. But then when they came to Pennsylvania... Yeah, I think that more or less <clears throat> helped to, I can't prove this, but I think that more or less melded some of these together in the three of them. Because I remember in a Pennsylvania history class when we were studying, they said, now this part, uh, when the Germans came, the English already had the East Coast sewed up pretty much. So Philadelphia was taken, couldn't have any farms there. <clears throat> so they came further inland. And when they came to Lancaster area, they looked around and said, wow, this looks like the part of Germany we came from, and yeah. it does. And so they said, okay, this is just like home. Well, then there, they were German-speaking in an English colony, and I think that gave a fraternity that they didn't have quite in Germany. It's sort of, this is my opinion, because they said, this is when the mad people came, the Mennonites, the Amish, and the Dunkers. Okay. That's what the teacher said. <laughs> so I think that's, I just think that, had more interaction than they did in Europe, even though they were in the same general areas, they still, with a horse and buggy, it can only go so far, right. dear neighbors. But here they were thrown into, I think, what made more more uh, fellowship or more. And sometimes they even got into a couple conferences on some other German groups that wanted to try and unite them, and they said, no, they're too different. Okay. Uh, it'll, it's going to be back like in Germany again. And so they went back to their ways. Oh, that's interesting. Um, and so I am interested in the, the now that you've brought up like Amish and Mennonite traditions, which are related to yours um, theologically, um, they do reject, um, they're like the ultimate example, if you will, of rejecting and putting off science and technology, right? Um, I, I where I'm from in Ohio, I'm from Cleveland, um, just 
east of Cleveland is Geauga County and there's a big Amish community um, in Geauga County. And whenever I'm driving through there, there's these, they, they use these bicycles, um, but they don't have pedals. They're, they're like uh, tall scooters. And I always assumed that there was some sort of like technological prohibition against the gears of the bicycle or something like that. And, and I, I, am I right about that? And how does it sort of relate to what you're talking about, I guess? Go ahead. Well, I never heard of that. Yeah. A bicycle without pedals. Yeah, yeah. It's just like a tall scooter. And that's what everybody, when you drive through there, they're all like pushing themselves along very quickly on these bicycles. Well, that, that's a new one to me. <laughs> that is new. I'm familiar with their riding bicycles. I was down in Shippensburg for six years. And there are a number of uh, plain people down there. In fact, some of them were migrating in because they're selling their places in Lancaster and looking for farms. They're looking all over the world, really, right now. But uh, it was a familiar sight to see them on bicycles. Yeah. Women, yeah, boys, uh, girls, bicycles. But they had pedals. Yeah, yeah. At least that I remember. Yeah, I've you know in the recent years I've been driving through there and I notice and you can even buy them at these little Amish shops. Um, these pedalless bicycles and and I I assumed that it had something to do with like an Amish. Or maybe that community, that Amish community's beliefs about technology and, and what's appropriate and what's not, right? Um, but that's something that you kind of reject. That that sort of like suspicion of progress in science is something that you reject. You think we should actually like embrace um, and and try to find a way to match our theology to this um, these these emerging technologies. Yes, and that's their dilemma. Yeah, which the Dunkers had and have largely overcome, largely overcome. Uh, now, back in my parents' day, uh, that was when they were automobiles were just becoming common, you know. Uh, my grandparents on neither, well, my grandparents on my mother's side didn't get a car till I remember when they bought their first car. My grandfather on my dad's side, my dad's original, uh, his grandfather was Amish. My dad had a grandfather who was Amish, and they became Mennonites during the next generation and then became Church of the Brethren in my dad's generation. So I have a lot of Mennonite relatives, cousins, mm -hmm. but the Amish died out mm -hmm. in this, this particular area. These Amish that came in that we see around southern Somerset County, they've some of them been down there for 200 years probably, but up around the Johnstown area here, uh, they kind of died out in my great-grandfather's generation. Mm. Uh, for a lack of adaptation, right? And so I guess as a metaphor, if we want to use the Amish experience as a metaphor, that's your fear for Christianity in general, is that if we don't sort of um, take seriously science and progress and that sort of thing, we risk making ourselves kind of like a, a, the same kind of thing happens to Christians in general as happens to these Amish communities that cut themselves off. I never thought it in those terms, but in a way, and it's not, you know, they are physically rejecting the ways of the world. I'll say the world versus the church. Right. They are physically in any way. That's why they don't have electricity, right. because that gives you an actual living connection to the world. But uh, now they vary. They have a lot of different levels of, you know, how they accept and don't accept things. And uh, so it's hard to tell. And, you know, a Mennonite minister told me one time, he said, I can't keep track of the different groups yeah. because they're so varied. Yeah. And uh, But the thing is, 
if you can have electricity with a generator, see, there's a lot of, I don't know if they're Amish or Mennonites because I can't keep them apart, <laughs> but they could have a generator to generate all the electric they need for their farm, for the barn work. But they can't run it up to the house because you don't need it in the house. I mean, they make that distinguish. Yeah. I had neighbors like that. Yeah. They had uh, they had the uh, electric in the barn, but there was no wire went to the house at all because yeah. it was forbidden. You didn't need it in the house. But up there you'd maybe have, I have a Mennonite connections, brethren, Amish all together out in the state of Indiana. And the one out there, his whole house has uh, lights. It has, uh, I can't remember what all you can hook up with, but it's all carbide. Mm. He has a carbide tank, and I just found out, since I'm an adult, that in Somerset County there were some farms. That's what they had carbide in their houses. They had carbide lights in the ceiling. I had never seen any of them when I was a child. We all had kerosene, if you didn't have electric. Yeah. We had electric, but uh, some of the farms back off the main road didn't get electricity until after World War II. Yeah. So I remember lamplight, my grandparents growing up. Gosh, I really appreciate your perspective on history. I mean, just having lived through this massive, I don't think people understand how much things have changed in a in a pretty short a period of time, right? And so you're actually a witness uh, to that degree of change. And I think it's just, it's fascinating oh, yeah. to talk to you about and it. I would say I've lived long enough. God's given me enough years <laughs> to be able to have that perspective because I'm seeing what people that died 10 years ago, if somebody died 10 years ago, have no idea what artificial intelligence is doing today. Right. That's how fast it's changing. Right. And the church... Uh, the Catholics, uh, the, uh, there was an article in a, a letter to the editor in the New York Times about four or five months ago, and she quoted the uh, head of the research department from Microsoft named Crawford, her first name, I think her first name is Kate Crawford, and she wrote a book about four years ago, and she said, there is no religion in the world that has anything to say about artificial intelligence. Mm. I mean... Doesn't matter if it's Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, uh, Muslim. I don't remember she mentioned the Eastern religions, but she said nobody has a thing to say about artificial intelligence yeah. because it's crept up on us. Because I sat in a class, it was an evening lecture. I don't remember the whole subject, but the professor said the problem that we have in the world today is that scientist says, I think I can do this. And the church says, but I wonder if you should. Yeah. And we all sat there and agreed. That's right. But it came to me over the years, that was back in about early 1960s, maybe. It was after I started my real theological education beyond what I had growing up. And uh, I thought since that time, why didn't somebody go over and talk to him and say, hey, we don't think you ought to do that? We told each other that. <laughs> I don't know if they ought to be doing that. But then our youngsters, our children, the people we see in Sunday morning, they're going over working with what scientists said, hey, we did this no matter what anybody thinks. And we accept that because, well, it's just what it is. But we never put a theological tie that when it gets down to the basics, you know, like if the uh, conservative uh, Amish don't want to 
get in touch with the world? Just then how far does this go beyond that? And we've sort of more or less stayed with the automobile. Yeah. We haven't gone beyond the automobile and the electric power plant any further than they did, as far as I can see it. Where did we pick up beyond that mechanical that you can see and measure with Newton's laws of uh, you know, speed and all those things. That, and science went into a whole new world, a yeah. whole new world. And we, we left them go and didn't even think it was worth following them. Yeah. In a way, I mean, we did in kind of broader ways what the Amish communities have done in very kind of literal ways, right? Um, in, in a sense. And so, yeah, I think that's, that's very fascinating. And I, as you're talking, I'm sure struggling to think about theologies of AI and, and theology. And like there are just giant swaths of scientific inquiry that religion just doesn't bother to address. And you're, you're suggesting that's a big problem. Well, I'll give you one example. This was about three months ago at the most. Uh, a conservative Mennonite. Now, he's one, I don't know what level you'd call it, but uh, they drive automobiles, but uh, I don't think they would drive a fancy car, and they, their women all wear the prayer coverings. Sure. All the time. You'll see them out. Now, when you see somebody in a prayer covering that's a white bonnet with strings, you can't tell which particular group they're from because there's some old dunkers in the area uh, who go by the original name German Baptist, okay. which was our name up till 1908. The Church of the Brethren was German Baptist, oh, okay. and they officially changed their name, but they're still a German Baptist, and you'll see them wearing the white bonnets, okay? So uh, one of these Mennonites told me we have a, he didn't use the word dilemma, but he said, we're opposed to television. But he said, it's on the cell phones. <laughs> he said right there, I don't know what they talk about in their church, but they recognize they're closer to the Amish than we are. Well, they, they drive automobiles. They have computers for their work, all kinds of things. They, they are very much on board in the uh, world of uh, work and trade. They're very much up to board this particular group. They're in our area. And uh, when it comes to some of these things, now that's too worldly. We oppose it. But if you have to keep up to date, you have to use artificial intelligence. Yeah. They're using it, but they don't call it by that. I don't know if they've thought of that term even. Yeah. It's affecting their life. And they can't get away from it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that actually speaks to my experience. So I grew up Nazarene. Um, and... You didn't smoke? No, definitely not. I've never smoked. I mean, that's that's a benefit of being a Nazarene. Right? Um, but uh, um, but I also like when I was growing up, we weren't allowed to go to movies. Um, right. um, that was, in my understanding, I may not have the. This is just sort of what was told to me when I was a kid. Is that you know when the Nazarene Church began, that's sort of like the genesis of. You know, the Hollywood uh, industry, and there, it was associated with a lot of decadence and that sort of thing. And so the Nazarenes wanted to pull themselves away from that culturally. So we weren't allowed to go to movie theaters where apparently bad things happen, right? But I grew up in the 80s when the VCR was a thing, right? And so I was renting movies from the, 
from from the movie rental place from Blockbuster or wherever, um, or even before Blockbuster, and watching the movies. I just wasn't allowed to go to the cinema to watch the movies, right? And um, and and subsequently that rule has been sort of dropped. Um, and so we can go to movies now, right? But um, but it is sort of like a, a way in which that kind of like prohibition cut us off on some ways from the larger culture, right? We weren't able to sort of like participate culturally in the way we might have because we just didn't, we didn't have the same references that everyone else did because we weren't going to see the same movies, right? But also at the same time, we were seeing the movies just kind of privately in our own home so nobody could see it, right? And so, um, and so there was a way in which we didn't have a, a robust theology to kind of um, account for the fact that people are still watching Hollywood movies, the same movies. We're just watching them in our home instead of the cinema. How does this make any sense? And so I only bring that up um, because you actually discuss about um, media. <laughs> and you so, have the similar thing the Amish do. You can have electricity if you make your own. Yes. You can't buy it off the company. <laughs> exactly. You, so we have. A, I never thought of that. But our denominations, yeah. we have similar things that... We didn't know we had. Yes, <laughs> absolutely right. Yeah, um, it actually reminds me of uh, in Jewish in in very conservative Orthodox Jewish communities where they have very strict rules about observing the Sabbath. Um, you're not allowed to carry things in your pockets, for example, outside your home on the Sabbath, and so they've come up with a system to make that kind of workable in the modern world. That there's a, a it's a complicated uh, concept called an Eruv, an E-R-U-V, an Eruv, which is basically a, a boundary that someone sets up around a, 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 a community um, that symbolically extends your home into the larger community so that you can walk to your neighbor's house with your keys in your pocket or something like that, right? And And so there's a way in which like faiths of all kinds have like come up with a, uh, whatever... Um, ways to get around <laughs> some theological principles, right? Um, and so, yeah, and we had our own with the VCR. Well, I'll tell you this. I lived in Pittsburgh, and the Jewish community has the same thing. Yeah. Uh, we had rabbis that were different, I'll say denominations for the for a word. They yeah. were different. But it was interesting how one rabbi would maybe practice a little bit more what the other one did to be conservative out of respect for his rabbi friend. Mm -hmm. But the congregations had two different approaches to this because they have the same dilemma. Yeah. In a way, it's the same same thing we have. Yeah. And it's all us as people of faith kind of wrestling with progress that extends beyond our theologies, right? We have our theologies haven't caught up with with progress on some level. And so we have to come up with these uh, get arounds, right? These these sorts of like exceptions, these things that allow us to function on some level in, in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and if I can say the, the original idea for it wasn't a book, but the original idea in my thesis was because having learned this ecumenical approach, I remember the time we had a youth speech contest in our congregation. It was connected with the whole denomination. And so one of the judges was a, a school principal, a junior high school principal, who was a good friend. He and I hunted together. Uh, his sister was in my graduating class, and I asked him to be one of the judges, not thinking that he was a Catholic. Mm-hmm. And, didn't, and he didn't say anything. But he participated with three other judges. It was a nice 
Sunday evening. We come out of the door, and the first thing he said, thank you, Pope John. He <laughs> says, I can go to church with him. Yeah. So, you know, they had that. Yeah. From the Catholic viewpoint, they had their uh, taboos. Yeah. Well, so does everybody. So then I came to the point, if we have this one truth that's for everybody in the gospel, mm-hmm. if we believe that, there should not, there needs to be differences of opinion. Paul said, you know, you, you have to talk about things, but why can't we be able to do it without actually opposing each other? Mm-hmm. And that was the root of starting to write uh, what this truth is and trying to find this truth and finally define that this truth has to be in the perfect truth that none of us can really resolve and say, I found it and you didn't. But if we want to say that to each other, can't we do it with the first and second commandments that we're going to love each other instead of put each other down when the Hundred Years' Wars and they went out and shot each other and everybody went home. <laughs> if you ever read uh, Candide, uh, uh, they I went, um, yeah. you never read that? No. Anyhow, you have to take in mind who Voltaire was, of right. course. <laughs> but he said, then I forget whether it's uh, before they went down to the battle or after they went down and slaughtered each other and came back up. And they all had communion. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was his jab. But uh, but that's his point, and that's part of the dilemma. Yeah. Uh, can't we totally disaway, do away with this, uh, I'll even say competition, if you want to get it down to that. But uh, animosities, yeah. which, of course, in North Ireland, that's the extreme case in North Ireland today. Absolutely. But you boil these down, that's all a matter of degree between the Catholics and Protestants in North Island and the two churches bickering across the street right. from each other. To me, it's the same argument, and we all have the same book. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, yeah, that actually reminds me, like, I used to live in this little town called Barberton, Ohio, and um, there were, in the middle of town, there was a United Methodist Church right next door to another United Methodist Church. And I always thought that was funny that they were not so united that they weren't separate yeah, churches, right? right. Um, but yeah, no, absolutely. I think you're totally right there. Um, and uh, and yeah, I think that's fascinating. I, I so reflecting back on your time as a minister, as a pastor, like how did these questions? I mean, so you're coming to this this sense of like just accept the very basics of the gospel that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Love God and love your neighbor, right? I mean, it just that's what we can all agree on. You are able to accept the the tension of living within these paradoxes, right? Uh, and that 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 makes you comfortable for that. How did that like impact your work as a minister? And how does how did your work as a minister impact your thinking about this topic? Well, uh, if I understand your question, I'll try to answer it in that same framework. Uh, I came from point A to where I am today, but I went through uh, a minister when I first was called to the ministry, when I accepted it. He told me, and I said, when you're in in seminary or in a class, he said, you're going to learn a whole lot of things that you didn't know before. But he said, when you're out in the hallway where you have other ministers talking, he said, listen to them too. He said, you're going to learn as much off of them as you do in class. Mm. I took that seriously. And so I have learned as much off my parishioners 
that I learned other places. Yeah. And I learned my first full-time congregation was a combination Church of Brethren Methodist. Okay. <laughs> I became ecumenical overnight. And they were in an area that had a very, very working Sunday School Association, which was a dinosaur. I don't know if they exist anymore. But it threw together all the denominations in that area. Now, it's fair to say at that time, the Catholics would have been, this would have been brand new to them. And there wasn't a Catholic church close enough to be a practical Mm -hmm. part of it. But we had uh, different uh, Church of God groups. They weren't the same. We had Baptists. We had Church of the Brethren. We had Methodists. We had Lutheran. We didn't have any Mennonites in that exact area. And we actively worked together. We'd have classes in the wintertime. And when you got together, if you took the prayer coverings off the conservative uh, Church of the Brethren women, which many of them still wear, uh, prayer coverings in our denomination, but it varies from congregation to congregation. And uh, in this part of the country, you don't see many. But if you took them off the Church of the Brethren women, including my wife, you couldn't tell them apart. That really opened my eyes. Uh, that's, that's when I became ecumenical. Uh, and I learned that hey, these Baptists, these Church of God people, these Methodists, we weren't any different. We just did different things. Now, the Church of the Brethren is a pacifist church. That's one thing that is different, uh, which is not like it was many years ago. Today, it's almost like a sub-topic. But if you took that away, uh, you couldn't tell the difference. We raised our children the same. We believed in the same things for people. And we would have interdenominational services. We accepted each other. Mm-hmm. You know, didn't matter if it was Pentecostal or Methodist or whatever, if we had a community service, well, that's great. Then that's, that's that community that uh, I learned to really, really, and whenever I moved further on, we had uh, participation in the Catholics, and that was in uh, the northern end of Johnstown. They had a very ecumenical group there, including the Catholic Church, and there we learned to the week of prayer for Christian unity in January. We had inner church services. I mean, you know, uh, the uh, Orthodox, there where you go over into Wooddale, St. John the Baptist, mm-hmm. they became part of it. And we didn't talk about how we do it in their church unless the time was for your church. You took turns. We'd have four nights of services during that week. And we took turns over the years. And there were certain denominations that might say, well, we just assume maybe if that person isn't in the pulpit, we're not quite there yet. Good, we did that, you know. Uh, or maybe, you know, we just soon if our pastor is not up in the pulpit, we'll all come to the service, sing together. Right. I mean, there was that, and it's still going on. They still have that group. That uh, And I went on from there. Shippensburg there was very, very uh, well-oriented with different denominations. And that's just the way it's been Yeah. for me. Yeah. But that all fed into, probably I didn't know I was going to write a book in those days. <laughs> that's where all these things kind of, why do we have to get nasty about it? Yeah. You know, why do we have to point fingers? Yeah. And, and a lot of the, I guess, rules, the traditions that sort of resist these technological changes are, are like functions of a small group trying to maintain its, its 
identity, its borders, right? And, 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 and you think that's kind of a waste of time. <laughs> well, if we don't, I mean, we can be that. Yeah. But in the meantime, try and understand. Yeah. Even if, to me in the church, even they say, I don't want to go there. Yeah. Okay. Uh, my denomination says that's forbidden territory. We don't, that's fine with me. Yeah. But I'm not, I'm going to fight with you about it. Right. I don't want you to fight with me about it. Right. You know, can't we on Sunday go to worship and remember, or even, I mean, there are groups that won't meet together, and I respect that. There are these uh, ecumenical groups. There are always churches or ministers that won't join them because that's where they are. Right, right. I have no problem with that. Right. That's no problem. You, but as long as you're following the gospel, yeah. and there's a big part of my book that is on that, because I don't believe that the way what we already know in science, even before artificial intelligence, there is no way that you and I, we could sit here 500 years, study the same books. There's no way we can think the same because we're different. Right. Everyone is born different. And so I, no matter if we can say here's a million points and we agree on them, someplace we don't agree. You yeah. just can't help it. Yeah. <laughs> so before we, um, I let you go, we're approaching an hour here. I, wanna, I wanted to ask you one question. The book sort of spends some time at the end reflecting on the the bible so you have like this idea that there is this sort of essential text that we all sort of agree on as christians right and so it has a special significance right um and you sort of reflect on the bible as a as a physical text versus an electronic text right you you have the possibility now on your phone of having all of the text of the bible and using your phone as the bible and so i you have some interesting and complicated thoughts on that i'd like to i'd love to hear your thoughts on 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 that kind of uh um development i guess well as i go through to the uh, end of the book the to learn all these things for a practical reason is so that we can learn the language to communicate with the coming generations that speak AI. Mm -hmm. I mean, because it's becoming a part of who they are and because uh, even though some people say it's not fair to artificially give names to generations, you shouldn't do that. <clears throat> but anyhow, we do and we know what that means. And for a fact, uh, we know that each generation already starts with a new, fresh perspective. They're going to learn things their parents didn't know. Mm -hmm. So if you do that, excuse me while I cough, <coughs> the uh, thing is that whenever we think of how we learn, we learned because if you read the golden age of childhood, I think the disappearance of childhood, uh, it was written back in the 70s, I forget his name, but uh, it describes how we made this transition from the time printing presses began and there was mass ability to learn to read, how it changed our culture and came to today. Well, the whole church, all our theology came along with that same progression. But we came to the point now where we learn to be a reading and writing, learning people. We've gone back to a generation where people are learning like the days of Jesus when they had no books to read, no New Testaments. Now the scholars and uh, some feel that the disciples actually took notes on what he said. Mm. But if they did, that wouldn't have been the same as the 5,000 people out there listening. 
they had to, he had to give them illustrations they could see in their mind and remember when he walked away. They could look at this field of wheat or whatever it was, make a connection. So we came to a time when you don't need that. We have books and learning, and we grew up in uh, 500 years now of learning how to read and become thinking by the Western mode, which the Eastern people still don't catch on to that quite the same as we do. Anyhow, so we got that mentality and logic. A to B, B to C, that's the way you think and that's the way you reason. And so we have a reasonable faith. Mm -hmm. And when you do that, everybody's got on board. They've been educated to that like we all were. My parents, my grandparents, my great-grandparents. We came to a point with television now, it's back to show and tell. Right. So they need the kind of preaching or something like Jesus had to get these truths across that when we say, but you got to read this book, well, was this book online? Now, the Bible for Protestants, or at least in my tradition, was here's the word of God. You hold it up in the pulpit. This is the word of God. Now, there are at least five different ways, Church of the Brethren did a study some years ago on how people interpret the Bible. And naturally, like any other group of people among the Dunkers, we don't agree. Right. In the same congregation, people won't agree because there are those five. Now, because you have that, we can discuss that as a theology. And they say, but you take this book, is what Jesus said more important than what Paul said? Mm -hmm. Is what Paul said more important than what Isaiah said? And you can debate that, and you have all different ideas on how that came about. And so you say, here's that Bible. We divide up the Old Testament and New Testament. You can see it. Put a red ribbon down the middle here. Now, we're coming to the point like 50 years from now, my great-great-great-grandchildren might say, well, yeah, I saw a Bible in the museum once, or they have one that was my great-grandpa's, and they still keep it for a relic because they're not going to see a Bible. It won't pay anybody to print them. Right. Thomas Nelson Bible Company, the biggest producer, they were bought out by somebody else. I mean, because of the uh, creeping industrial, that's another subject I have, right. that's eating us up. We're right. being devoured by uh, in the Industrial Revolution, which didn't stop, and artificial intelligence is its handmaiden to get the job done. So as we all go into that uh, for uh, practical, I'll say practical versus holy reasons, the Bible's going to disappear unless somebody handprints one. Yeah. There will always be independent publishers. But by and large, it will be this revered book that we call the Holy Book, the good word, God's book, they'll say, yeah, we heard about it, but the, all they will have access to is electronically yeah. because there won't be others. Then what do we do? Yeah. It's fascinating. You're right because, yeah, it's it's on my phone with my Twitter app, right, and with everything else. It's, it's not – it doesn't occupy like a sacred space on my shelf anymore. It's like – a text among everything else in my life, which has all been reduced to a text that I hold in my hand. And this could be in a Nazarene church yeah. or a, any church, any denomination, yeah. Jewish, yeah. if you want to. Uh, you're going to say, okay, well, here, Isaiah said this, didn't he? But didn't uh, Jeremiah said this? But what did Moses say? Okay, put your finger on that page, hold that. We'll flip over here, yeah. <laughs> and you look, what do you have? 
you can't flip those pages unless you have screens up in front of you. Right. <laughs> what will they do for Bible study? Yeah. Yeah, the the medium. Yeah, the medium will change the the practice. The medium right? will change. Yeah, and what the old what was it? This goes maybe you don't remember. I forgot his name. Say the medium is the message. Marshall McLuhan. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking of Marshall McLuhan actually when you were talking, um, because yeah, he he's wrote about the Gutenberg galaxy, right, and the way that the printing press completely like rewired human beings, right, um, human society, and and the way that television and new media are like upturning um, those kinds of old uh, old practices yeah I actually just looked into McClue in this semester for a class so uh, yeah so he's like fresh in my mind as you were talking so yeah, yeah. well this is the thing because uh, we just don't know where this will go because it's all and when you talk about beliefs now we can say here's light versus darkness you probably have heard about the theory that there is no light it's actually dark you familiar with that one yeah this I only know I saw one reference, but in lab, I said Bell Laboratories. Anyhow, the, the LED lighting, I read a short article that the development of that came somehow out of investigating the theory of darkness. Oh, interesting. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but if it is, there are people working on that, which is you take the, if you take the theological language of the Bible. Yeah. We shouldn't even be going there. <laughs> that's but that's so like, well, should we be pedaling bicycles or should we be pushing them? <laughs> it's the same argument. It is. And you're right. And your argument ultimately is that um, Christians need to kind of constantly work to expand our theology to accommodate these developments, right? And it's the the book is called The Bible, The Bomb, The Burden. Um, and John Aish has been talking with me about it. I really, really enjoyed reading the book. I really, really enjoyed talking with you about it. It's nice to, I don't usually record these in person. Uh, and so it's actually nice to be in a room with you uh, discussing this. And I, it was just a, a fascinating topic. Um, the book is available. It's it's through Christian, Christian Faith Publishing. Uh, and it is available on Amazon. Um, you're free to get it, or not free to get it, you have to pay to get a Kindle version of it, <laughs> but you could buy a hard copy version of it too. I highly recommend it. And John, thank you so much for joining me. This was so much fun. Well, I thank you very much for having me because I think it's really so important. I wish there was some other way to get a million other people to get because <laughs> the next generation, if we believe in the gospel, that it needs to keep going to all people to save them. And how are they going to know it if they don't have some way to communicate, to pick up and if uh, true to what the uh, Dunkers would have said, how does this apply to what you're doing? How do you relate to the world around you? They're relating to a world, the uh, students in this university right here are in a world that I'll never know yeah. because it's way ahead of my time. <laughs> yeah, I doubt that somehow. You have like an infinite curiosity and I think you'll find a way to catch up. So, um, <laughs> so John, thank you so much. It was so much fun. Um, I hope you have a great day. Thank you very much and the best to you and to all your students and everybody else that you the lives that you touch and you don't know how far it goes. Yeah, I, I can only hope for the best. <laughs> Amen. Thank you.